this morning we're we're going to be in the book of Philippians um, again, and we're entering uh, Philippians chapter two. If you you're visiting with us, we're we're in a series called Under Pressure. We are talking about um, the church under tremendous amount of pressure. Uh, in this context, and just to give it a little bit of an introduction, the book of Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Philippi. It was a, a Roman colony uh, which had become a city. Um, and uh, in that city, the Apostle Paul had uh, started a congregation. It was flourishing. It was, a, it, was a, it was doing well. But they were under a lot of pressure. And the Apostle Paul was also under a lot of pressure. This is toward the end of his life. He's been imprisoned. This is called one of the prison epistles, uh, the prison letters. Um, and so he is looking back on his life and forward to what God is doing. In chapter 1, he actually makes a statement. He basically says toward the end of chapter 1, he says, Look, I'm stuck between two things I want. I want to be with the Lord. I want this to be over. And yet I, I want to be with you. And I want to be a comfort to you, and I want to teach you, and I, I want to lead you. And, and I, the Apostle Paul, just as his life as it li- his life moved on, he just got closer and closer and closer to the Lord Jesus. And the closer he got, um, the more passionate he was. Um, but we're going to be looking at chapter 2. And so if you, you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the racks in front of you. And you can just open to the table of contents and find the book of Philippians. Um, it's toward the end of the Bible, but... We're going to be in actually the first 11 verses of Philippians for a couple of weeks. I'm not sure exactly how long we're going to be there. We're going to read it, and then we're going to look at one aspect of it this week, and then next week we're going to look at a different aspect of it. Is there is a, a lot of, of stuff packed in just these few verses. And so we're going to go ahead and read. We're going to begin in chapter 2 and verse 1. Um, and uh, this is what he says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, or or the word is really fellowship, commonality in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, jointly, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, it is truly Your glory that we we want to see. God, we do not know what Your glory is made of. We don't know what makes You tick. We never could. We never will. Not on this earth. Yet we know when Your glory is manifest. When 
your people are gathered in your name. And through, through Jesus Christ, we, we exalt you and we lift you up. Father, we ask, would you open our eyes and our hearts and our minds that we might see your glory, that, that a little bit more of the amazing and miraculous and mysterious mystery of your being would be revealed to us, that we, we as your people might know you a little better. We pray all of this through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. There is a, a, a lot of scholarly debate and discussion about the history of the church. Back in the day, back when we're talking 1st, 2nd, 3rd centuries of the common era of A.D., A.D. 100, 200, 300, there were a lot of opinions about Jesus. There are still a lot of opinions about Jesus. Um, there are a lot of people who follow different schools of Christology, which is the theology of Christ. How do we understand this? And there are a lot of people that will tell you now, in our, in our current culture, in our current society, they will say that early Christians did not believe that Jesus was God. They will say, well, the, they, they, they didn't really believe that that was an idea that was developed along the way. That as the church got bigger and more influential, they made a shift and they started to make Jesus more than He ever claimed to be. Uh, there's a book. Uh, if you're really interested in reading it, probably the, the most concise way of dealing with it, there's a book called Jesus, a Biography by a guy named John Dominic Crossan who goes to great lengths to prove that Jesus was just an illiterate peasant who just got lucky. He got the right followers at the right time, and so as a result, everybody follows Jesus. You know, and it was just, hey man, he was just a he was just a good guy who wanted everybody to get along with one another, and he was killed, and and people invented the story of the resurrection, and they invented the whole idea, and then then later on, people hundreds of years later wrote the Bible, and and you know, you're stupid if you believe otherwise, and that's kind of the argument that's made. There is many passages in the scriptures that you look to to refute this whole idea that the church did not believe that Jesus was God. But this passage right here is one of the key ones. This is one of the most powerful uh, passages of the Apostle Paul when he talks about Jesus. And Paul is good at being powerful. But here, he is going to lay down a precedence for us that should mold and and force everything we do and say into uh, conformity with it. Now, the first few verses, he talks about encouragement in Christ, comfort and love. We're going to come back to those. But I want to focus, really, what I want to do is I want to focus in, beginning in verse 5, because he brings to, to the forefront an image of Jesus that we need to see, that we need to understand. The Apostle Paul uses several different Greek words to describe Jesus' form, shape, uh, appearance, we'll say. And while usually we don't, we don't do a lot of Greek and Hebrew and all that stuff, because none of us are Greek and Hebrew, I, I want to hit these because they are super, super important. 
Look at what is said here. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or, or which you saw, which you know in Christ Jesus, which you see in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, there are different translations of this, uh, but, but basically what is being said is he was the form, the Greek word is morphe, all right, the word we get metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis means meta in Greek means change. Morpho means form or shape. All right, and metamorphosis is to change your shape. All of us, one lay a long line, went into chrysalises and came out as beautiful butterflies, right? No. Um, but uh, but insects do that, right? Caterpillars do it. They, in theory, if it ever stops raining, they will... Um, the caterpillars will get into their chrysalis and they will pop out and be beautiful butterflies. I could quote Bugs Life, but I won't. Um, but uh, they, they, um, they change their shape. And in Greek, morphe, this, this, this idea of a form, it is a permanent shape. It is a permanent being. It is shape as part of your being, as part of your essence, as part of who you are. And we know certain things as shapes. If you take a, 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 a iron ore, is it a sword? Is iron ore a sword? It's not a difficult question, folks. No. no. All right, so if we take that iron ore and we smelt it down, and it's, it's a boiling vat of hundreds of degrees Fahrenheit iron ore, and we're cleaning the skim off, is it a sword? No. If we take it and we, it's forged into, it's poured into a mold and formed into a line and sat on the black, black, uh, blacksmith's um, workbench on his anvil, is that a sword? What's required of it in order to be a sword? It has to have a sharp edge. It has to have a sword's shape. It must be shaped like it in order to be it. And if it's not shaped like it, it is not it, no matter what you say. It doesn't matter how much you say, uh, you know, this watermelon is an orange. You don't make a watermelon an orange by saying it's an orange. What is an orange? The thing that's shaped like, tastes like, is an orange. That's, that's the reality of morphe, this form. So when the Apostle Paul says that Jesus had, who was in the form of God, he was in God's form, it is saying Jesus, by being essence, nature, shape, reality, is God. There is no way that the Apostle Paul could be understood any other way. It is an absolute statement. The Apostle Paul believed that Jesus was and is God. Now, that creates all kinds of problems. Because in the Old Testament, the Scriptures say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Many Jews in the time of Paul said, Paul is saying that there are two gods, that there is God and then there is Jesus, and they're both God. And the Apostle Paul actually in this passage says that's not the case. He simply is God. And the strange thing is that the Apostle Paul was perfectly content to have that tension. God, creator God, Jesus God, they're both God. God is one. Two guys named God, one God. 
He was okay with that. He was all right with that. Didn't bother him. You say, how on earth did that not bother him? Well, it's this little thing called faith. The fact of the matter was that that Paul had experienced the presence of Christ. He knew that he was indeed God. But then, well, if he was all God, then, then maybe he wasn't really a man. Maybe Jesus was a figment of our imagination, or, or Jesus was a, uh, he was just kind of a ghost that kind of looked like a man, or a shape that kind of looked like a man. But look what he says, and then he says in verse 7, he said, but made himself nothing, taking the form, morphe, of a servant. He says, yet again, now we see Jesus in the form, the being, the essence, the shape, everything that is a man. He is both being, essence, shape, everything that is God, and being, essence, shape, everything that is man. How? The Apostle Paul's got a great line. He just says, because he could. That's what he says. He says, though he caught, thought it not, uh, it was not, it did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It wasn't a big deal to be equal with God. Um, uh, to him, it was just that was just part of who he was. And yet, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He just took it on. He became entirely man while being entirely God. Yet again, doesn't make any sense, does it? How can one being be two things? He must be by default one or the other or half and half. No, he is all of both. Now who could possibly pull that off? Only God. Now look what he says at the end of verse 7. He says, being born in the likeness of men. And this is another Greek word, homiomai or homioma. Uh, it's the word that we get uh, uh, homogenized from. And things are made the same. Uh, the, the idea of something that, that could be diverse being combined into one thing. Uh, that it is, And so Jesus, in the form of God, being essence everything that is God, and in the form of man, being essence everything that is man, he is both, was found in the likeness of man. He looked just like every other person. I remember as a kid reading this verse and then realizing how wrong my family Bibles were. Because if you read your family Bible and you leaf through you know, the big Bible that blow the dust off and open it up, there's always this picture of Jesus. In every single picture, Jesus looks different from everybody else. He's, he's always unique, and yet the, the, the best description we have of Jesus is actually a description given hundreds of years before he was born by the prophet who said um, there was no beauty or there was no comeliness that we might desire him. He's just an average, everyday person. As shocking as it may sound, you walk by Jesus on, a, on the road, you would not know he was Jesus. Now, we don't tend to think about it. We, we kind of have in our mind kind of this idea that when you, you walk by Jesus, you kind of get sucked in, you know? Like, like the, the disciples, Jesus walks in, he goes, follow me, I'm fishers of men. They're like, hey, hey, that's what's up. And they're being pulled along. This is this not, he was just, he just looked like an average, everyday guy. He took on the likeness of man. He took on the, 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 
the appearance. He was perceived that way. And then there's a, a fourth line, and this is, this is the, the, the one that blows my mind. In verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now here is an amazing one. The, the Greek word here is schema, the word that we get scheme from, schematic. And it is a transient shape. It is something that is temporary. We talked about him being in the, the form of God, he, being essence, everything that is God, he was God. And being in the form of man, essence, being everything that is man, he, he had all of those things. And we say he was found to be just like all other men, but then we read that he found himself in the schema, in the, 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 the shape. The, the human form, and, and even that's, a, that's not a, the greatest translation. There's really a hard way to convey it. But this temporary flesh, this, this thing that knows there is time, there is a beginning and an end, that knows that the clock is ticking, this thing that, that sees the deterioration of the world, this, this thing that is human, that sees the world defined by its, its edges, Jesus was found in that schema. How do we know that time passes? You ever thought about that? How do we know that time passes? We know because there are ends to things. That's the only reason we know that time passes, that that time goes by, because things end. If, if, the, um, if people lived forever, we, we wouldn't care how old you were. Women would openly admit it. Um, if, if, we knew, if, we, if we knew there was no end to a, a presidential term, I don't know what we do. Um, <laughs> but but the, the whole perception of the universe, the, 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 the physical definition, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to kind of hedge it a little bit because there's a lot of technicality to it, but the whole definition of the idea of time is matter passing over space. That things end, things move, things, uh, things must change, and therefore we perceive that there's a beginning and an end to everything. And so when the Scriptures say that He found Himself, He was found in the schema of humanity... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now this sounds really bizarre, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to convey it all the way, but I'm going to try anyway. Death is a foreign thing to God. God cannot die. God, according to the Scriptures, has no end. He is from everlasting to everlasting. So death is a characteristic of our condition. Now God understands it. He, he, he knows it. He, he even guides it. But it is not part. It was not His intention that we die. It was not His intention that we grieve. It was not His intention that we have pain. It was not His intention that we have guilt. By the way, that's why those things hurt. Because we were not created to experience them. 
We do not have in us the apparatus to handle the things of the world that we were not created for. You say, why does it hurt so much when somebody dies? Because we were not created to die. It is as unnatural as it could possibly be, and yet it is part of our schema. It has become a part of our universe. It has become a part of our galaxy. It has become a part of our form. We know the universe is wearing down. We know things that die. We know that the end. And when Jesus, who was all God and all man, stepped into it as one of us and He stepped into the schema, there was only one thing He could do. And that was to become death for us that we might have life. You see what the Apostle Paul, he says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I, I personally, although there's not an a, 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 a unbreakable, irrefutable argument about this, I believe that the reason that God chose death on a cross instead of just death in general, that Jesus died on a cross was because the cross was the single most torturous the single most painful, the single most embarrassing and broken way that somebody could die and God wanted to convey to us what our sin does to Him. That it twists and breaks His heart. God humbled Himself, Jesus being God, humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because how does a God all God, step into this schema defined by death and do anything but bring an end to death. In 1 Corinthians, and you don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, and it's a good, it's a good context for this statement, but 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul deals with death um, quite a bit, um, and he has this to say. He says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Literally to be patronized to be treated like the mentally impaired. Because if God, walking among men, did not see death and want to declare an end to it, if God, entering into the schema of our universe, did not become so overwhelmed with compassion for mankind that He was willing to do anything it took to end the end, then what good is God? If Jesus as God stepped into the world and went, wow, these poor suckers die. Tough for them. I'm going home. Or if Jesus was just another person who just died on a cross like the rest of us. Not that we all die on crosses, but died like the rest of us. What's the point? What's, what's the reality of this? I often say, that I'm an atheist who cannot get past Jesus. And people have a tendency to think that that means I just can't get past his moral teachings. That's not true. I can't get past the resurrection either. 
Because his moral teachings without the resurrection are just a handbook for how to be a goody two-shoes. But his moral teachings coupled with his resurrection mean that death no longer has a hold on me. Although this body is defined by a beginning and end, that I was born on August 17, 1976, and I will die one day way out in the future. I am no longer defined by that. Jesus says you are no longer defined by the anticipation of death. You are no longer defined by the fear of the grave. You are no longer defined by the sting of pain. You are defined by the one who took death for us. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says that we are buried in the likeness of his death, that we might be raised to walk in newness of life. And that life has no end. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. I believe that the Apostle Paul sees in his mind a statement that Jesus said. Jesus said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all men to him. He did not mean that if we, if you and I lifted up Jesus, you know, put him on a banner and said he's coming back on May 21st, that everybody would listen to us, but rather that Jesus knew that God himself would exalt him. And that even in death, Jesus could not be bound by that death. And one day, about 2,000 years ago, on a Sunday morning, Jesus simply stood up and declared death defeated. I'm a Baptist, so what's going on inside my heart right now is not coming out of my body. But that is an exciting thing. God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. I don't get often speechless here. That name should echo and reverberate through the lives and hearts of the people who have taken it. The word Christian means a little Christ. It means that we have taken on ourselves the name. In the book of Exodus, Moses says, or God says to Moses, Thou shalt not, he didn't say thou shalt not, but that's how I memorized it. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now we use that to tell our kids not to say, you know, Jiminy H. Cricket. Um, You know, but we, we take this, you don't take the Lord's name in vain. That is not what that means. When you became a follower of Yahweh, or in our case as Christians, a follower of Jesus Christ, you take his name and you carry it with you. My father one day said to me, I gave you nothing except your name. Don't you dare wreck it. I did my best to to wreck it. But the fact of the matter is, I carry his name. And you and I, as followers of Christ, carry his name. Name And we are commanded by God not to take that name in vain. 
because it is the name above all names. We should not take it as if it is just an empty label. We should not take it as if it is something that we just do one day a week. We should not take it as if it is something sacred that is to be put on a shelf and worshipped occasionally, but not part of our lives. That name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ, that many of you in this room call your Savior and your Master and your model, it is the name above all names and He is worthy of all praise and all glory and our knees should bend every time we hear Him. And yet you and I both know that there have been times we have not been worthy of that name. There are times that that name which should be tattooed across my heart is covered so that I don't have to justify what I'm doing to the one who bears that name. Here's the big idea. Those under pressure must bow. Those under pressure must bow. I don't know how I'm going to handle this. I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. I don't know how this pain, I can't handle it anymore. I can't deal with it anymore. We must bow. But we must bow together. We must bow together. When a brother or a sister is in pain, when a brother or a sister is facing life's challenges and they, they don't know what they're going to do. We, as the followers of Christ, we who have taken that name must not take it in vain and we must bow together. We must weep together. We must mourn together. We must celebrate together. We must rejoice together. We must work together. Everything that we do, we do it together because of the One whose name we have taken. Under pressure, we must bow. Breaks my heart, and I've referenced it a couple of times, and I have not mentioned it in the service coming up to it, but it breaks my heart that people who claim to be Christians brought shame on that name this past week. Because they thought they could speak for Jesus. They thought they had Jesus' time schedule. They thought that they had the plan. And let me remind you again and again and again that the only words that Jesus speaks that we should speak are here. And if we're doing our math and computations and we're going to include something Jesus didn't include, beware. Beware. I was taught a long time ago, when God is silent, be wise and be like God. Now, we're under pressure. Because now everybody's saying to the Christians, ah, you goons. You know, outside of the the offices of the place that started this whole rapture on May 21st thing, a group of atheists gathered yesterday, and at 6 o'clock p.m., 
they released a bunch of human-shaped balloons into the air to mock us. Oh, those Christians are idiots. We're under a lot of pressure now. We must bow to the name. Oh, you're the guys who believe that, you know, whoosh, you're going to get evaporated into heaven. Nah, I'm just a guy who believes in Jesus. Oh, you, you Christians, you're responsible for all the wars and the crusades and everything. No, I'm not responsible for any for that. I'm only responsible for bowing before Jesus. Oh, Christians, you guys fill in the blank. No, I'm just following Jesus. I'm just trying to follow Jesus. And I'm sorry for everything wrong that has ever been done in His name, but I just want to follow Him. And I just want to bow at His name with a group of people who are willing to bow for the name above all names. Heavenly Father, I don't often get super emotional, but that name, the one who died for the sins of the world because He cared, because He entered our world and could do nothing else but bring an end to our greatest blight and fear. And we know that that end, we will not, we will not realize that end for, until um, we are with Him. Father, we bow before that name. We're under pressure, God. Consumerism taking over Your church. People identify your, your name with so many things that your son never identified himself with. Help us to bow. Help us to bow before him. And Jesus, the very mention of your name, I quake in my sinful boots. Because I know that You transcend everything that I could ever hope or wish to be. Thank You for who You are. And maybe now as we pray, as we still have our heads bowed and our eyes closed, You come into this journey with us and we say that we create environments where people encounter Jesus and You have come to a place where that name resonates with you. Where you desire to take that name, to follow Him. God has worked on your heart, opened your eyes. Don't hesitate. Take the name. Jesus, we take Your name. We we proudly say we are Christians. And we bow before only Jesus. We are broken and imperfect. We are sinners. We turn to You as our Savior, our Master, and our Model. Lift us up from our knees that we might walk in this world and speak Your name. 
In Jesus' name, God's people say, Amen.